0: Cinematographer Manuel Billiter has worked across a variety of iconic and groundbreaking shows and films, including Jessica Jones, Luke Cage, Iron Fist, Law and Order, Person of Interest, Orange is the New Black, Lawless, and Alfonso Caron's Ita Mama Tambien. Most recently, he has been director of photography on the HBO Max series The Gilded Age, starring Kerry Kuhn and Christine Baranski, and Netflix's Inventing Anna, starring Julia Garner. Manuel Biliter, welcome to The Creative Process.
1: Hi, it's an honor to be here.
0: We've so been enjoying the very beautiful The uh, Gilded Age and just looking over your body of work, I was wondering how you had come to the project because you have the Jessica Jones and Luke Cage and Iron Fist and Law and Order and Ozark and all these films, not too many costume dramas or period pieces. So what was it that they wanted about your approach to tell this very interesting moment in American history?
1: Well, it's true. I've had a, a large variety of different looking and different storytelling aspects of that each project brought with it and I think my draw towards the show was exactly that that I hadn't done a period piece on costume drama in that sense yet and I think as a creative you'd like to expand your portfolio a little bit on a beat like pinned down to one specific style and only one specific type of storytelling and one specific type of stories because then you get a kind of like pigeonhole into one box And that doesn't really challenge you to try something new or to venture into something new. And I think as as a creative, it's important to keep challenging yourself and to keep coming up with new ideas and new approaches to your artistry. So I was happy and I was grateful that I was trusted into something that was a bit of a departure of what my previous resume maybe would have suggested. And I hope I didn't disappoint. Also, the thing is, I knew some of the producers that were on the show that had worked with me before. So maybe what they saw was that I could probably tackle this new challenge without missing a beat, maybe. It's very much about collaboration, what we do. So in the end, I think being a good collaborator goes a long way, as well as just artistry or talent.
0: Yes, and I know you have done some period drama, but that hasn't been your specialty. And I know that you also collaborated with Vanya Soniola. Yes. The lensing, it breathes very beautifully. And I thought maybe they brought you in as well because it depicts so many strong characters, strong female characters, and maybe they wanted to have a bit of claws underneath this very civilized veneer, which is a like a motif of the Gilded Age.
1: Right. Yes, that's also definitely another aspect of why I was drawn to this specific project of the Gilded Age. Just because it's populated by so many strong female characters, and it looks like this may be a common thread throughout the projects that I've done. There's always been a very strong female lead and unusual female lead, and I must say I'm drawn to that kind of storytelling, and I'm drawn to those stories because I think it's important to tell those stories and to inhabit these stories from a very female perspective. So that's something that maybe I find myself almost in a comfort zone there, which goes against what I said earlier about you need to keep challenging yourself in a way, which is true. But on the other hand, I think there's certain motifs or certain stories that you're just naturally drawn to.
0: Yes. And can you describe some of those discussions that you might have had around the table in the character building process, whether it is with the particular actresses, the strong female characters, the costume designers, the creator and writer, Julian Fellows, and all that to help build the atmospheres to show their power and the different dramatic tensions going on. In
1: this particular case, I mostly collaborated very strongly with the director of the episodes that I shot Sally which is Whitfield we discussed the scripts the episodes the key scenes like ahead of time and you know so just basically in part to get to know each other and to find a way to work together and also just to see how what is her approach and what can I bring to the table what would my approach be and this sort an overlap and there was a lot of overlap so that was a really good way to collaborate because basically we were seeing eye to eye and we would walk through all the sets with the script in hand read the scene, talk about the scene, figure out is there a specific way we want to get into this scene coming from the previous scene? And what is the scene about? How should we intersect it? How, how should we approach the shoot? What's different in this scene? Or what's particular about this scene? And how can we visually bring it to the fore? How can we enhance the storytelling visually by movement or lack of movement? Or what, what kind of lenses? What kind is it long lens? Is it wide lens? But we always wanted to put the characters front and center. That was like an overriding motif throughout the show and throughout all episodes. To really getting to the perspective of whoever seen it was really about.
0: Yes, there's a beautiful choreography and the camera work and we get to experience in the audience. I'm actually not sure if this is one of your episodes when we see the electric light for the first time, the right. magic of that. So the changing of the light, which goes from what's always soft throughout, but maybe just go a little bit into the light and the whole setting and how you recreate this New York with these beautiful houses, that whole architecture of it that we want to go back to this time and then we understand it's not a fairy tale.
1: The specific magic moment of the electric lighting that wasn't my episode but it was it's obviously a feast for any cinematographer to be able to do something like that yeah very early on in our discussions we did mention look this lighting is done by gas gas and candles and oil lamps so none of those sources actually are really especially bright but we didn't want to create a world that was dark and dim even though naturally it would have been like that we didn't want to create something gloomy in that sense because darkness, I don't know, very quickly can descend into that. We did try to always motivate our light from what the natural sources would be. Like during the day, it would be coming into the windows and at night it would be the chandeliers or fire as well. We use the fireplaces quite extensively in a way to motivate light. And also a fire, especially candlelight, just gives it like a very nostalgic, warm glow that really envelops all those spaces. And yes, in terms of lenses, we wanted to go as wide as possible and as grand as possible to really give the audience a taste of how it was to live in these opulent palaces and like really create an immersive environment that you would be transported back into that time.
0: And so describe a little, because we don't traditionally think of America as a class-based society, but it's definitely a lot of class struggles, new money. It makes us reflect on our times in terms of individuals or corporations accumulating too much wealth and having too much power nested in certain individuals. Just describe for those who haven't seen The Gilded Age yet, set up the scene and how you were lensing that to tell the complete story.
1: While doing research and reading about the time and reading contemporary reports about New York and how New York grew and how it grew very fast and how society was stratified, basically what was astonishing in a way is that if I hadn't known that some reports were actually written in 81 or 82, if I didn't know that they were 140 years old, I would have thought they're talking about the current time. So so it's something that this, this incredible amassment of riches and wealth in the end of a few people is something that maybe is always prevalent in any culture. But definitely there were a very strong parallels between the current time and the Gilded Age. There was this very rapid ascent to immeasurable riches that, yes, there's parallels to the current time as well. Just Bezos, Musk, and you name them, it's a similar kind of like a discrepancy between who has a lot and who doesn't. And so in that sense, it wasn't a stretch trying to imagine how those individuals lived in the past because there's parallels to draw from in our current time.
0: Yes. And it describes, I mean, so many strong female characters from Carrie Coon as Bertha Russell, making her way as this new money into society and others. And there's a black bourgeoisie that I didn't know about this and the very fascinating character of Peggy Scott as a young writer making her way. Just describe some of those elements of American society at that time that that you might not have been aware of because you do live in New York. And so it's your city that you're discovering again. (laughs)
1: Right, I do live in New York, and there's a ton of parties I'm not invited to. (laughs) So it's the same. Uh, Speaking of the strong female character, I mean, when I first read the script, uh, the the pilot episode, what really sprang out, or what I really thought was an interesting way of discovering this world, was that we discovered it through the eyes of Marion, who is an outsider who comes in. She's not in New York. She doesn't know much about New York at all, except that she has like two very wealthy members of high society. But this process of discovering this world through the eyes of an outsider... And being like dropped right into the middle of this conflict that the show builds upon, I thought was really interesting. And it it goes into the motif of the the strong female point of view.
0: I don't know if you're the type of cinematographer who also likes to be behind the camera. It seemed like with some of your previous work, there's an immense amount of choreography in terms of the fight scene. So how involved were you in this project to get the emotion in handling the camera or advising your camera operators?
1: Yes, the camera is my tool of choice. It's what I've been given to express what needs to be expressed, and what needs to be told. So I'm definitely very particular about composition or lens choices or camera placement. Both Vanya and I really like working with our camera operator, Oliver Carey, who's got a brilliant and a brilliant mind and he's always able to make suggestions to make something better than I would have thought or I would have seen because sometimes I'm just busy just lighting something and then it gives him time that he always looks and finds a way to enhance what we set out to do in the first place so i quite heavily rely on his creativity and his artistry and his input basically to help me again it's a matter of collaboration and the collaboration that goes between many departments and many different individuals and having somebody like that like oliver in your corner really gives you a lot of peace of mind because you know you're in good hands and for gilded age what i had thought how to use the camera to work in these two different worlds of the new rich and the old rich Something that Vanya had proposed was to shoot the old New York with anamorphic lenses, which have a bit more of a nostalgic feel and are more associated with big, grand, old Hollywood movies. And the New York, the newly rich Arivist with spherical lenses, which are a little sharper, a little flatter, a little crisper. And on top of those two distinctions of just that lens resolution, if you want, I also felt that old New York, because they look at the world in a more traditional way, they're more set. They don't want to change anything. So I felt that Having static shots and shooting foreground or with a frame within a frame. So it feels like how they're enclosed within their own world and won't let anything come in from the sides. So I was gravitating for those story lines with a more static camera and always also like in a zero tilt position. So, so the camera would always be kind of like all the lines will be straight and squares if there's no low angle or high angle. Of course, we always break the rule to make a difference. But the overriding idea was that their world was going to be depicted in a very formal way. Whereas the New York that has more dynamic, had more movement, had more, it was circling around more. So it, it was thrusting Things forward. It was kind of like upending this very rigid, if you want, composition style that we found in the more traditional old mining of York.
0: I found it very interesting the way that women dominated the scene within the home. And I suppose I shouldn't have been surprised. Did you find that interesting to, to learn more about that?
1: It's something that how society worked then or, you know, maybe it still works that way. There's a big influence, obviously, and there's a strong hand in a family setting, I think, that probably the motherly perspective is something very dominant. And it's at least at that point, it was the only real sphere of influence that was given to women because the women were not necessarily in the workforce. I mean, it was very rare to have women in a leading role in any of the businesses or sciences or arts and letters. And then you had like female writers having to publish under a male pseudonym because as women they wouldn't be published or as women they wouldn't be recognized. So, yes, at home, as we see with both Bertha, how she's kind of choreographing the life around her daughter, and also with Agnes, the way she's choreographing and designing the path and the world for Marion, that's maybe the sphere of influence that was left or offered to women at the time.
2: So in your previous work, a lot of your work happens in metropolitan scenes with the sense of modernity. Like Jessica Jones, a lot of shots are very impressive and portraying another layer of New York City through the color tones, composition, and so on. So what are your thoughts on the relationship between locations and characters?
1: To me, it's the very crucial element of storytelling is to show the characters within the environment and make the environment part of the character, especially in Jessica Jones. or in Luke Cage, the city was a very important storytelling element. Maybe it was almost like an extra character that was living and breathing. Also, I think that showing the characters within a certain environment it informs the character, it gives the character more depth and background. No pun intended, but you know what surrounds the character, what's in the background is very much in the foreground as well, or should be. That's why I usually gravitate towards shooting with wider lenses, even for close-ups, just getting with the camera closer, but necessarily on telephoto lenses for a close-up, because I always feel that the surroundings are very important, not just visually, but also as a storytelling element. It just intertwines the space and the human within that space.
0: I think as a cinematographer, one always hears actors preparing for their roles like in Luke Cage or Jessica Jones and learning the process of fighting. What have you learned about fighting and how has that influenced your cinematography? Every
1: time you start a new project, it really starts with the page of the script and then you're being taken on a journey of discovery and hopefully a fruitful discovery because it's not that every script or every book resonates with you. And there's a certain dialogue that has to happen between yourself and the material to get anything going, it must be like some sort of ignition igniting moment in the pages there. And I'm just letting myself transport and follow the and follow the story, whatever it is. I don't think that coming in with a preset mind or a preset idea for imagery would do the project any service. It's like when I was reading, for example, Jessica Jones, all I knew was, okay, it's a Marvel show. So I had a certain genre in mind or I had a certain story in mind that I thought I knew from Marvel projects and I was very surprised how different it was and how rounded it was and how broken it was and how moody it was It's like in the pages and how flawed in a way these characters, they were complex characters that it's not just about a superhero saving the world at the end of the day, but it was much more of a struggle that all of these actors carried within themselves and psychologically I find that much more interesting to show this tension that inhabits the characters so I think that I learn as I go and I kind of follow what is given um, on, on a page, I always Regard to the script as a blueprint, where uh, you know, just at first you just read what's on the page, you read the story, you just get to know these people. And then only when you read it the second and third time, I really start thinking about imagery and approach and what would be an appropriate way to tackle the story at hand visually. It's, so it's a learning process. So that's maybe what I mentioned at the beginning about the challenge that one should always be open to seek and to approach. In creating something, I think it's very much about a dialogue about between the material at hand and your. And your collaborators, so many different creative minds behind any of these projects—the writer, director, production designer—it takes a village, and I'm happy to be part of this village.
0: And I wonder how you also, with all the action scenes and the fight director, and you spoke about Jessica Jones and conveying a sense of humor and complexity. She's not invincible; (laughs) she's definitely. How do you convey all of that, and how do you choreograph that, really?
1: Well, when it comes to fight scenes, and they are kind of fun to shoot because it is, in a way, a bit of a dance between camera and the characters again there's specialists out there that know more about choreography than i would ever know or, or that suggest a way to shoot a fight scene for example and oftentimes the director comes with their underlying idea of how they would want to depict a certain fight or certain moment and or a moment like that maybe we think well, it would be best if there were no cuts if it's just like one continuous shot And then the fight choreographer, the stunt person, the stunt coordinator come up with a solution that doesn't necessitate a cut necessarily. It's just a different approach of how do you want this fight, for example, or this uh, this sequence, how how do you want it to feel? How do you want to bring them? audience into this and there's always many different ways how to do it but you always have to be on the lookout for the way that best serves the story and best immerses and invites the audience into into this world and i remember like a long time ago when i was operating the camera and uh, i was and fight scenes were kind of interesting because it requires a lot of from yourself like some physical fitness but also you really have to be on your toes and it requires a high level of concentration to get it all in camera in a compelling and provocative way
0: Yes. And I was just speaking yesterday with Abby Ajahi, who wrote the Shonda Rhimes series for Inventing yeah, yeah. Anna Beautifully, Julia Garner, and you directed episodes and worked on that. And I couldn't help but think of comparisons between the Gilded Age. It's not the same thing, but Anna very much someone, well, con woman, but inventing herself, whether it's true or not, but putting on the appearances to make that climb. Did you make some of those comparisons? And what was your approach for that?
1: There is a comparison to be made, of course. That in the case of Anna Delby, it was a pretense. And maybe in the Gilded Age, there's this push towards a pretense as well, where like the new rich people, I know, unlike Anna Delby, that character, she was faking it. But these people are the real deal. But still, they want to strive for more. They want to conquer more, something that they don't have. And they want to get some sort of recognition that they don't have yet, or that they have to scheme about in order to achieve it. And no, there's clearly some parallels. I mean, on one hand, obviously, there's the world that it's set in, and you know, I world of riches and of success if you want to use this term in this um, connection right now but there is that you know the world of luxury definitely it was something that for the Inventing Anne of the Shonda Rhimes series for the two episodes that I shot I wanted to visually as best as possible just seeing the characters in that world and how they move about it I was just enjoying it was kind of like a flashback to it as well I was just enjoying season two of The White Lotus even season one is kind of set in that higher echelon of money people. And I think on that show as well, it depicts the world that these people move about in a very interesting and compelling way. This is an approach of trying to make the most of depicting those worlds and creating an immersive atmosphere. There's always been the fascination with, in the end, maybe aristocracy or just people that live beyond what your means are, and there's something fascinating about it. Another one would be a succession, but that's very, in a very different way, in a way where it's uh, almost nothing real about those characters. But Gilded Age is different in, in that sense. It doesn't have that sort of cynicism that oftentimes that comes to play in stories like this.
0: I know you hadn't directed extensively on Ozark, but on the note of Julia Gardner, it seems thematically linked to money and its underbelly. And where does it come from? The things we do to survive and maintain power.
1: Yeah. That's that show starts, it's all about money. Episode one, season one, it's all about money and how our relationship or Americans' relationship with money and having enough or not having enough, there's always a sort of worry about it. And Julia, she's just a wonderful kind of person to work with because she just transforms so radically depending on what the show is. It's an honor to be able to witness such transformation and such dedication and with ease, but there's this, really, this marvel that I encounter every time I witness a performance like that and she's just one example, but it's just the way actors can turn on and off a character in between takes, for example. It's something that I find fascinating Fascinating how you can give all of yourself into a role and into a character and make it work and live it and/or pretend live it. It's kind of a privilege to be privy of witnessing transformations like that. I have, I have the highest respect for actors who embark on that journey and take risks you know, while doing so, especially.
0: Yes, you've certainly lend some immense talents. One of my favorite films is Itou Mama Tambien And I know you were in the editorial process. That's a masterpiece. The simplicity of the storytelling, it's not the big sets, but what was packed into that.
1: Right. I still look back very fondly at that because it was one of my very first projects I worked on and I kind of stumbled upon it by, well, one necessity. I yeah, got to pay rent in New York. It was just a, an amazing privilege, again, to be able to work with such incredible talent. What at the time I thought was great for me was that I was able to see all of the cinematographers work and Emmanuel Lubezki was and is an artist that I had respect. And so being able to kind of sit front row after the fact, I wasn't on set, I was just an editor. The department, but I could look at dailies, I could look at rushes, I could look at deleted scenes and I could study the way it was shot. And then later on, sitting during the coloring process when he was in town for a day and he took, he took time off another job to come in and work in color grading and just being able to be in that room was incredible because it just introduced me to something that I could in a way only dream of. And the film is great. The film, it really spoke to me just the way it was told, the way it was basically speaking about so many different things, so many different aspects of society, so many universal truths if you want without really speaking about them there's no exposition at all about it it's just we have this narration of life in a way or these comments about life and they open up so many depths of history, of culture of the characters and kind of just mentions it and then leaves it up to you to fill in the blanks or to imagine or to import it with with a deeper meaning and I thought that was as a storytelling device as a narrative, a concept I found that incredibly uh, important or incredibly fascinating to not necessarily spell everything out but to leave enough room of interpretation for, for the audience. I don't think that the audience necessarily is better served having everything explained and everything presented on a platform are just in tiny small little bites that are easily digestible i think it's actually it creates a much more immersive discourse if you leave certain things unspoken but you mention them and then leave the audience the freedom the creative freedom to actually fill in the blanks or to construct a narrative that is maybe not necessarily explained or not necessarily the right one, but it makes you an active person, it makes you an active member of this dialogue if you let them in. And I think one way to invite an audience into your stories is to leave room for interpretation and to let them witness something that without necessarily explaining every single bit and telling them how to read this or how to see this, but just giving them some sort of a creative license as well. I think that's important to maintain that level of involvement from audience, because in the end, we tell these stories for them as well, or mostly. We're not telling them to ourselves. We want to go wider with it and touch upon something that resonates, there's many ways to approach it. But I find that maybe that the open-ended approach is more interesting, rather than something that, the approach that explains everything and, and leaves no room for any doubt.
2: As Manuel Billeter was speaking, I really appreciate the creative attitude he has in the film world. As he phrased keep challenging yourself, keep coming up with new ideas and new approaches to your artistry. As he described the discussion process he had with the directors before shooting and the numerous questions he asks to himself just to discover the best cinematic approach to the storytelling and the characters, I can feel how much he cares and cherishes the opportunities to present a stunning fictional world to the audience using his cinematography strength. He treats every story and characters differently and depicts their features through lenses. His value of an open-ending story as a way to create an immersive discourse and invite the audience into the freedom of creativity really speaks to me. As a cinema studies student, I also enjoy watching stories that leave a space for my interpretations. But hearing Manuel Biliter's understanding from a cinematographer's perspective adds another layer to this approach. Later on in this episode, he will discuss how being born in a bilingual family shaped his method, an understanding of artistic creations, and more reflections on his life as well as the beauty of creative process as a cinematographer. Now back to the interview.
0: For me, It's Tambien, like The Graduate or these other coming-of-age films, as you say, they're these two young men, and it's a three-sided dance, and they're all learning something about themselves. So I think that, as you identify, we're voyeurs in this very quiet drama. And I think it was the first film I saw by Alfonso Cuarón. It just blew me away. Tell us where you are born.
1: I was born in Zurich in Switzerland. I grew up in Zurich. My mother's Italian. My father's Swiss-German. That's where I was born and raised. And I did all my schooling there until high school. And then for university, I went to Berlin. And then after Berlin, I came to New York.
0: Yes. So you're American. (laughs) Well, yeah.
1: uh, (laughs) Yeah, I've been here for 20, God, 25 years. And uh, yes, I have an American passport. Yes, I'm an American citizen (laughs) at long last. But yeah, of course, part of me is American because I'm surrounded by Americans. I work in America and I love being here. I love New York. It's always a source of a lot of inspiration. But I think what defines me most is maybe that that the way it was brought up, bilingual, Italian and German, I think maybe also sparked some sort of a creative drive, knowing that there's more than just one way to express something. Obviously, there's multiple ways to express something in the same language, but I had this advantage from birth, basically, to actually know that you can actually express the same thing in two different languages with two completely different sound systems and be able to switch back and forth and to see the differences in verbal expression as well. So that's something that probably defines me more than being part of any specific nationality.
0: I think that there's a great advantage to that insider-outsider ability or maybe for you sometimes when you have to analyze, obviously you're in America for so long, but if you're filming elsewhere and you can't just turn off the sound and just experience the emotional visual storytelling, that can sometimes be a great advantage advantage too
1: true it's an interesting concept about being inside and outside and how images in a way are what i'm looking into to, to achieve with an image is always something emotional in the end or something evocative and they can be, by like a trite saying of like a, a picture says more than a thousand words or which yes there is an immediacy of what if you look at something that can be incredibly evocative and that cannot necessarily be put in words. On the other hand, when I work, I never not listen to the dialogue that the actors are performing because I find that actually my images, they look different if I hear what people are saying all of a sudden it gives an image a much more I don't know a much more three-dimensional reality it just gives it it gives it an extra layer of significance that I don't want to shut off I know some cinematographers they just prefer to not be bothered at all about what's going on sound wise I'm a firm believer that the dialogue and or the lack of dialogue is actually extremely powerful and helps enhance the images then there's another element that sadly isn't, or only extremely rarely is available on set while we are making these images, the music, and the rhythm. I always find that what I do, that cinematography, I find it very musical in a way. There's a certain rhythm in it, and there's a certain tonality in it. Just the way it has this, it just with the same temporal continuum. I always feel that there's a strong parallel and that synthesis between music and cinematography.
0: And speaking of rhythms, I know that when you're working on a show, you're very familiar with who's writing the soundtrack. So you're probably encountering those artists, but sometimes with films, you're not able to be in that final process. But how much are you able to at least aim towards a sound that you're aware of, or at least you learn that from the director those you're collaborating with?
1: Most of the time it's a surprise when I see what kind of music or what kind of sounds are being added to a scene. And I always feel very flattered (laughs) when I hear the music to it. And just to see that someone's creation actually added so much to the depth of the images that we created. I find that I'm, I'm eternally grateful when I make this discovery. Sometimes we do know on a certain project, okay, this song is going to be playing in this, or it's this theme that, or sometimes the director even says, no, think such and such for this, for this move. Just, I'm going to put something in the vein of a specific artist or singer or musician. And so that gives me a guide how to marry these two temporal elements of, for example, a camera move that I know should match the music and vice versa but again and it comes back to the aspect of collaboration and of all these different aspects and all these different creations kind of like building each other up towards something bigger and grander and more powerful than you would have thought or that would be possible if you're just by yourself
0: and in terms of collaborators or teachers that were important to you either those that you collaborated with directly or learned from or in history that you said "Well, wow, that's how you do that how could, i wish i could do that how could i
1: do that maybe in history what i think brought me on I mean, made me want to pursue a film what started my fascination with film and cinema was, was definitely Fellini and Antonioni and, and Bertolucci and the masters that you want that kind of make you dream make you just go to a movie theater go enter this space and just have a communal experience you know looking at the screen and just being completely immersed and experiencing stories or experiencing things that make you understand life more or make you maybe understand life less and creates a dialogue between you and, and and the rest of the world that's maybe some mentors that i didn't know that would just spark this interest yeah, and this fascination with an after that obviously there's a, the collaboration with the sponsor was incredibly important and and i learned a lot I carry a lot of that in me undeniably but then i also had a the very good fortune of working as a camera assistant and as a camera operator with other uh, cinematographers that I learned a lot from them and they became mentors in a way. And it was kind of a fortunate path into becoming a cinematographer myself that I had this privilege of sitting in the front row as an assistant or as a camera operator and observing and learning while I was working as well. And I could see, and talk, okay, how does this person approach? Have you seen how, what is their lighting style? Okay. How do they relate with the crew, with production, with actors? What kind of behavior is displayed? How do they interact with people? What is their process? I was being able to observe that is invaluable in it was a good way to learn with like in my film school was being there being in the front row and keeping my eyes open my ears open and just be observant, and learn and learn by doing and learn by watching and learn by seeing what should be imitated and what shouldn't be imitated do
0: you mind me asking what you were like as a young man
1: what was i like as a young man i forgot when i was a young man <laughs> no i don't know i know as a kid i was very shy And maybe as a young man, I started shedding that a little bit. Um, What was it like as a young man? I don't know. Maybe a little bit adventurous. Adventurous in the sense that exploring more than just finding, trying to find a path in this life. And it's a process that took me probably quite a long time to get to where where I'm now. So maybe it was just a meandering way of observing and letting things percolate. And then in the having the privilege of, of manifesting them and make them concrete in the shape of moving images.
0: There's that line that Christopher Isher would I think that I am a camera and I want I to... that? <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> everyone knows <loves> that. <laughs> yeah, but- I was thinking, because I was thinking about it that I was maybe 19 or 20 years old when I read Goodbye to Berlin. I was in Berlin and that paragraph just really struck me. I am a camera with its shutter open. And one day, all this information, all this needs to be developed, printed and fixed. And I thought I was, you know, I was dabbling photography back then already. So the terminology and the photographic process was not new to me. Yeah, it really resonated with me a lot because that sentiment allows you to give yourself time that nothing has to be fixed and chiseled for eternity Right this second, which is why it's, so that's something that it really kind of like sprang out to me. And I remember when I was thinking about this uh, interview here, I was that quote came to my mind and I looked it up again because I think that's a very significant way of uh, what the creative process can be. That's also why I like because of this not timelessness, but at least a prolonged process of coming up with something manifest. I really do like that the prep work, the, the pre production work on a project, probably the best because it allows you. It gives you time. It allows you to come up with ideas and to mull over them and to change them, to shape them, to redirect them. And then, when it's go time, like on set, that's also incredibly exhilarating to finalize it in that moment and say, "Okay, this is it now. This is it." But there's also something very daunting about it because you know that after that, there's you can only tweak it at that point. After that, you can impose, you, you, know, you can you can work on it, you can grade it, and you can shape it a little bit more. But, but in essence, the moment where you're on set and you implement the plan that you came up with your collaborators, that's it then. That's there's no redo. So there's something very daunting about it, but there's also something incredibly exhilarating to be able to complete it.
0: There's a beautiful reflections. And I think that really help us understand what you in the collaboration process can do that helps us understand what is beautiful about this life in this preparation time and hold still and ask ourselves what is important and how we're connected to other times as well in the past.
1: Yeah, I and mean, maybe what we witnessed like or what we lived through uh, two years ago was a stark reminder of that and very impactful moment in our lives when all of a sudden, at least for me and for what I was doing and for what everything came to a screeching standstill, everything had to be kind of like recalibrated and questioned. There was no way around it. And in a way, it was frightening, of course. But on the other hand, it was also a very, very interesting way to be thrown into many questions and reconnect with what's really important to you and what you think is the way forward.
0: It was interesting. I know some cinematographers and you were probably going, if you could go out, if you got permission to go out at certain times, going out and filming an an empty airport or these things. Did you sneak out sometimes when you could?
1: I don't know I took the time as a time for reflection and for recalibration and I didn't just kind of to step away step aside for a moment because I knew It's only temporary. It it has to be only temporary. It can't be be the rest of my life. So I I really needed to take a break and to refocus. And frankly, also just to be with my family because as a crew member, you don't have control over your time nor your location very often. So you miss out on so many important moments of your life that you you have chosen to marry a certain person. You have chosen to have children. You made all these choices. And then when you work on set in production shooting, you don't choose those things anymore you don't have the luxury of choosing at that point you just have to go and to be where and when you're told that you have to be so there's a certain i don't know want for independence during those times that you would like to be able to be the master of your own time which you can't be but that's also maybe something there must be something about it that also makes us keep going back and doing the same thing <laughs> and, and keep doing it maybe it's just this itinerant way of life that has something very fascinating and where it's it's never the same place and never the same time. It's always something else. So always different stories, different experiences. There's a bit of a vagabond aspect behind it that there must be something that suits our personality or our style. I don't know what makes us pick and keep doing it and keep coming back for more punishment. And I say that joke it's not punishment. It's a great privilege but there's moments where you question yourself and you have moments of doubts. like, "Why, why am I in this situation right now? And of course, Of course, there's enough rewards uh, in there that makes us want to come back over and over again and hopefully never cease.
0: Yes, I think that keeps (laughs) filling. I think that it's the intensity for those who are lucky to live it or to be able to sustain within it, that I think it's an immense service to those who can then sit back in the audience and appreciate art. You know, as you think about the future and the kind of world we're leaving the next generation, what for you is the importance of film and the arts and what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember?
1: I think that the importance of film and the arts, or, or the arts in general, is to bring people together and to have a communal experience. Everybody gravitates towards maybe different kinds of artwork or different forms of artwork that they prefer. But what I find is that overriding aspect of it is that there's some sort of communality, the shared experience. The other that brings people from extremely diverse backgrounds and life paths together in this one moment where, you know, everybody's focus is on this common thing and and you make a connection with not just the work of art, but but also with other people who are experiencing the work of art. Yeah, I think that that gives me hope, actually. There's all these problems, inequality or environmental doom, but there's always been something to overcome. So I don't think that, maybe I'm wrong, but we've overcome many things before and I think we will keep overcoming them and, and I think for me, one way to do it is just to immerse yourself with art and, and the shared experience and the sense of communality. I think that's what keeps our uh, planet going. Well, and then there's the weather. and that's-
0: I think that if the rest of society were able to work collaboratively in the way people on a set or a television show do to create a common vision, society would be much better off as a whole. So definitely our politicians could all stay in the same place like that. It would be a miracle. So thank you, Manuel Villeter, for sharing your sensitivity and compassionate camera work that helps us understand life and create dialogue between us and the world. And for your important contributions to cinematic storytelling, thank you for adding your voice to the creative process.
1: Oh, thank you. It was an honor to be let speak my mind.
2: The Creative Process podcast is supported by the Yami Shaski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and River Zhang with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this episode was River Zhang. Digital Media Coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hegenbarth. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolus and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcast, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thank you for listening.